Alright, so the book of Numbers. Uh, not traditionally a very exciting read. When we first get going into it, it's kind of like reading the census data. It uh, can be tedious. And so what I've tried to do here is take that information and just repackage it a little bit um, to make it easier to um, handle. So let's see. So register. So where are we, or when are we, rather? Um, if you go back to the book of Exodus, um, the Passover is observed on the 14th day of a particular month, and God said that this is going to be the first month of your year. Um, and so it starts counting time forward from that. The next day, on the 15th day, they depart from Egypt, and they start walking in the wilderness, eventually cross the Red Sea sometime on the second month, um, which in the second month. So that'd be about one month after um, they've left. On the 16th day, the manna um, starts falling, which is important because they'd run out of food during the desert. Um, and then by the third month, I don't know the specific day, they arrive in the wilderness of Sinai and they start camping there outside uh, Mount Sinai. And that's where they're going to remain for... 11 months you're going to be there you're going to have moses go up uh on the mount um, he'll come down have the golden cow incident he'll go back up another 40 days and when he comes down this time they'll start commencing building the tabernacle and all the stuff that goes inside of it and that process is going to go on for the rest of the year um, and sometime at the end of the year it's going to be completed it's going to be inspected moses is going to determine everything they did was just right and then he's instructed that on the first day of the first uh, month of the new year, they're to have it all set up. And that's what happens in the book of Leviticus. You've got the tabernacles now set up. You get the priests um, put into their role, consecrated. And on the eighth day, they begin to start their labors. And so, and they get a lot of instructions for how they're to do that. It's the book of Leviticus, the Levites, the, the rules, the law. Um, and then you get to the book of Numbers, um, and it starts taking place in the second month of the second year. So we are 12, 13 months almost since leaving Egypt, um, and it starts on the first day, and it says you need to take a census, take a head count. So that's where we are. Um, so the first census is soldiers only. You got to be male, you got to be 20 years and up. You fitness, you got to be able to go to war. Um, who are you going to count? All the tribes except for Levi. Levi is excluded from the warring. Um, they are dedicated to the Lord. Um, they got a different job. So, soldier head count. So, um, I took this PowerPoint slide deck from a, a sales pitch PowerPoint, and so they had this little thing about meeting the leadership team. And so I said, well, that kind of works, because in the first chapter of Numbers, God says these are going to be the 12 leaders of each of the warring tribes. Um, and so I've highlighted uh, three of them in different colors, because they are going to be uh, significant as the figureheads for um, a larger group. Um, these are 12. We're going to be divided into groups of three each. Um, so a total of four camps. And so Reuben, Judah, Ephraim, and Dan will be the figurehead tribes um, referencing those larger groups. So that's significant because when you're reading, are we talking about an individual tribe? Are we talking about a camp that includes the three tribes? So just hang on to that. Individual names, not so worried about. The only one who kind of 
would show up later is Nashan. He was a Judah. Um, his son, uh, Salmon, would wind up marrying the harlot Rahab, remember her from Jericho, and they would have a boy whose name was Boaz. And he, as an old man, would mar marry Ruth. Um, so this will give you the line down to uh, Jesus um, through Nashan. All right. So what's the results? Here they are. It takes a lot of text in chapter one to um, put all this out, um, but this is you know, just reduced down to table form. This is how many soldiers there were in each camp. Had to be 20 years old, had to be male, had to be able to go to war. And so, you know, how big of an army did it have? They have 600,000 fighting men. You got a pretty large population. So this is the number that we use when we're extrapolating out, trying to figure out how big is this population of people out there in the wilderness. And so that's how you get the guesses of somewhere around 2 million. Because you've got wives, you've got children, you've got those that are too old to go to war and those that are under 20. And so this is a big old group. So next you get the um, layout for the camp. God is going to tell them you put the tabernacle in the middle. You're going to put a ring of the Levites around them so nobody gets too close and does anything um, foolish that gets them killed. Um, we've already seen two of the five original priests die at this point because they messed up. This would be Aaron's two son, um, Hophni and Phinehas. That doesn't sound right. Um, anyway, two of the sons, I don't have their, their names off the tip of my tongue, um, but they... Um, burned strange fire before the Lord, and they were struck for it. They were killed. Nadab and Abihu, which they are. Hopni and Penehas are later in the time of Judges. So the Levites are on the inner ring surrounding the tabernacle, and then you got the courtyard around it, um, uh, which is um, you know, an additional protection for the tabernacle. And then you have... Um, on the outer ring, you've got starting in the east, which you've got described as the camp of Judah. So you've got Issachar and Zebulun. Um, and then Reuben, Simeon, Gad. That's described as the camp of Reuben. Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin. It's described as the camp of Ephraim. And then Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Um, sometimes people will put these in just three straight rows and three straight rows and three straight rows and three straight rows. Um, probably not. And that would be leaving big gaps um, where an enemy could come right into the middle. Um, but again, to find a patch of ground that's unencumbered and level for this large of people, um, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit um, less organized than any picture would give you um, reason to believe. Um, but there is order. And God's told him, this is where you'll camp. You'll camp by the standards of your tribes, um, not just anywhere you want. And this would come into play later of why when it comes to moving day. All right, so camp grouping. And you've got the reference to Camp Reuben. That's 151,000. You've got the aggregate of those three amounts. It's 25% of the population. Of the soldiers, Judah 186, Ephraim 108, Dan 157. So roughly you've got those camps uh, into about a quarter um, each. 
second instruction um, comes in Numbers chapter 3, where you need to take another head count of the Levites. Now, this one's different. This has not to do with um, warring. This is just their existence. And so if you're a month old and up, and you're a male, no fitness requirement, but you're the tribe of Levi, we need a head count. We'll lead the Levite leadership team. Over here we've got Moses. Uh, he's unique. Right? There's not going to be someone who fills the role of Moses um, in years down the road, except for he's going to give a prophecy saying that the Lord will one day raise a prophet like unto me, and that's going to be fulfilled by Christ himself. Um, and Joshua will have to replace Moses as being kind of the executive military leader, um, but that's not a line that will continue. Unlike the Levite team of Aaron, he's the high priest. Moses' older brother, you know, he's 83 when they go into uh, leave Egypt. Leave Egypt. So they've been in the wilderness uh, nearly a year now, so I guess he's about 84. And you've got his two remaining grown sons. Other two have already passed away, Eleazar and Ithamar. They're both priests, not high priests. There's only one, and the priests have to be of the descendants of Aaron. Eleazar is the chief of the Levites, so all of their cousins um, of the tribe of Levi are going to report to him um, in their job, um, and so he is going to be responsible for the operations of the sanctuary um, as it's stationary and doing its thing, as opposed to his brother Ithamar, who's responsible for the transportation of the structure of the tabernacle itself. Um, and so Gershon and Merai will report to Ithamar for transportation detail. And they're the ones who are hauling the hard goods and the soft goods of the tabernacle versus the Kohathites, which are gonna be carrying the articles of furniture inside. So you got your Levite head count. What are the results? Right. You got this many of Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. What are those names? Those are Levi's three sons. Um, they're obviously long dead, but these are the defend their descendants and now they're grouped by their family. And so you know, you've got a grand total designated as 22,000. That's the number given specifically in 339 of numbers. You add the, those figures up, it's 22,300. Um, what the difference is there, I don't know. But God's using the number of 22,000 for a count later. And so that's the one we're going to run with. In additional information on how the Levites are going to be laid out in the inner camp, starting on the east side, you've got the priests, and you've got Koath. Gershon and Merai. Right? So that's going to be the order of operations for who's forming that inner ring. Um, again, it's not just your own choice, but you can't where God's into. Transportation tabernacle assignments. All right, so the tribe of Koath, um, they are going to be responsible for all the stuff inside the tabernacle the ark, the table, the candle, the altars, the bronze altar, the vessels, all the stuff. But the kicker is they got to carry it on their shoulders. None of it can go by cart. Whereas Gershon and Merai, the other two families of Levi, they're going to be responsible, Gershon, for what I'll describe as textiles, the soft goods, the curtains, the skins, the hangings, the cords. They can be put into um, wagons. And then the framing, the boards and bars and sockets and pillars and pins, you know, a lot of really uh, heavy stuff. Um, that's going to be responsibility of being carried and set up by Merai. In Numbers chapters 3 and 10, it gives us the marching orders. Um, you know, the pillar of fire will, um, or cloud, depending on which time of day it is, will ascend up off the tabernacle and let them know it's time to go. First um, 
group to leave will be the Camp Judah, and that will be all three of those tribes, followed by um, Ithamar, the priest, who's going to be leading um, the two tribes, who um, Gershon and Merai, who are going to have the textiles and framing of the tabernacle. It's going to be broken down and then moving behind the first three tribes, and then the second uh, camp of Reuben's going to go, and then the Kohathites are going to start walking, carrying the stuff, um, ark and bronze altar and all that. And the idea is that by the time that they all stop and the tabernacle um, instruments are walked to the new camping site, um, the tabernacle will be up and installed and these things can just go into them immediately. And behind them, there are going to be six more tribes, Camp Ephraim, Camp Dan. Right. You've got uh, instructions to take a third census. That is a count of all the firstborn males, all the tribes, one month old and up. Turns out there's 22,273. Now going back to Egypt, when God spared all the firstborns of Egypt and killed all the firstborn of Egyptians, he declared that the firstborns belonged to him. But rather than taking possession of the firstborn from each of the tribes, he says, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi to be mine. And so it's going to be a swap. So, but there's a shortfall. You got 273 for which there's not accounted for. And so God says um, there's going to be a, a price paid to redeem those, which is five shekels um, per person, which translates to 1,365 shekels. And those funds will be delivered to the priest. And I know I'm going fast. I'm trying to get to the new material. All right. In Numbers chapter 4, the priests get their packing instructions. Um, the Kohathites who are responsible for carrying this stuff cannot handle them. They can't just come in and, and, and mess with them. Um, these are described as being you know, holy things, and only the priests could um, work with them, and so they had to be prepared a certain way. And so for the ark, they would take down the veil that separated the two sections of the tabernacle. They'd fold it and lay that on the ark first and then they'd lay a layer of badger skin. And then on top of that, there'd be a blue cloth. The showbread table, you'd have a layer of blue cloth, and then the showbread and the dishes and spoons and all the stuff, and then a layer of scarlet cloth, and then a layer of badger skin. The candlestick, um, which is different from the ark and the table because it has staves to carry them, doesn't have a staves, and so it just have to be laid down, and they said to put it on a board. So the board with the snuffers and the lamps, all the stuff that went with the candlestick would go on that board. Covered by a blue cloth, covered by a badger skin. A small golden altar um, where you burned incense, sorry, um, blue cloth, badger skin, and all the stuff that went with it um, is going on a separate board um, with blue cloth and badger skin. And so that's the layering for the priest that had to do that. And then once it was properly covered, then the Kohathites could come in and pick it up and say, you'd have this is what the ark would look like. All you see is the blue cloth and carrying the staves. The staves are covered in gold, table, badger skin, and clip art with some badger skin overlaid it. Um, and so, candlestick, toting on the board, golden altar, instruments. So, those are all the things that are inside the tabernacle. Outside, you got the big bronze altar. It's big, but it's still the portable version. Um, when Solomon builds his temple, it is much, much, much larger. Um, so, the bronze altar, so you'd have a layer of purple cloth. And then you have the altar tools, and then on top of that, you'd have the layer of badger skin. And then um, after that, they would um, come to the way. Census number four. Now, 
you know, you've got to get a head count of those Levites who are of the appropriate working age, and that age is designated being between 30 and 50 years old. Got to be male, and fitness, it's not explicitly said, but it's implied you have to be able to serve. You know, if you are responsible for taking down the tabernacle and putting it up and hauling it through the desert, um, you got to be able to, to work and do the job. And so this is the age of those who are eligible. The results, you got about 8,500 total men from the three different families, which represents 38% of the Levite men's population. The rest are either too old or too young, maybe not able to serve. All right. Numbers chapter 5 deals with the removal of all the unclean. Um, the book of Leviticus defined what it meant to be unclean. If you'd handled a dead body, if you've got some physical issue, diarrhea, constipation, if you have leprosy, there's a whole lot of different things that can make you unclean. And the idea is that the camp is supposed to be a place where only those who are clean exist under the law. And so if you're not clean for a time, you've got to go out to this outside area. Now, whether it specifically was one camp, probably not. There's one reference to lepers that they need to dwell alone, which just means separately. So it could be one, but it could be a whole bunch of individual little um, spots uh, around this major camp. Um, so the location isn't known, it's just outside the camp. How long you stayed there depended. It could be as short as a day. Um, if you did the things you were supposed to do to cleanse yourself, wash yourself, and then wait until evening time, you could come back in. Uh, but if you've got leprosy, something that's you know, perpetually unclean, um, and then you could be there for the rest of your life. So again, yeah, removal. So the instructions to do that were in Leviticus. Numbers five is the actual doing of it. They're now separating themselves. And then you've also got three different um, ideas um, repeated in uh, Numbers 5. Well, first is repeated. It's a concept of restitution that when somebody trespasses against somebody else and you cause damage, you have to pay back 100% of the damages plus an additional 20%, kind of like a fine or penalty, and then a ram of atonement um, as a trespass offering. And you can see Leviticus 6 for all the uh, details on that. You've got a recitation that the holy things belong to the Lord, um, and the Levite, the Levitical, Levitical law will define what holy things are, but they're pieces of offerings that are waved or heaved and that will specifically belong to the priests. And then finally, you have kind of the strange, in our estimation, uh, trial of jealousy, which is how it's been referred to. Basically, uh, a man has suspicion that his spouse has been unfaithful, um, but he doesn't have witnesses. And under the law, you can't, you know, one, adultery is a, a death penalty offense for both parties. If you have someone who's caught in the act of adultery, both individuals are put to death. That's the law. Um, but you have to have witnesses. No one can be put to death without two or three witnesses. And so in this scenario, you have no witnesses and you also don't have a pregnancy. Um, you know, like Bathsheba and Uriah, David took Bathsheba while Uriah was away at war and Uriah didn't go back to his home. There's no way he could have been the father. And so there, even though you don't have a witness, you knew that somebody impregnated her other than the husband and says, that's not that scenario. This is just the husband is suspicious. And so this is a method to either prove her guilt or her innocence. Um, you know, husband could just be um, going overboard. Um, and so it's a way to prove a negative. Um, and so the idea is that um, she'd be brought to the priest. She'd have to drink um, some water that's been mixed with dirt from the floor of the tabernacle. Nothing particularly special about those two things other than the fact that you know, the priest is 
and saying that there's a curse over this water, and he says this particular curse. Basically, if she's telling the truth, nothing happens, and if um, she has been unfaithful, that um, she would bear that sin, and the consequence would be evident in her body with a belly swelling and thigh being um, rotten. So um, that's the end of Numbers chapter 5. Number 6 deals with the law of Nazarites. Um, Probably think about Samson, who's one who was uh, designated as being a Nazarene for his life. That's kind of the unusual scenario. To be a Nazarite just means to separate. One's dedicating themselves to God for a time. The duration varies. It's set by the individual themselves, generally. Again, Samson's was set by an angel before he was born. But what that meant was you had to completely abstain from any intoxicating drink. You had to abstain from any food or drink produced from grapes. Um, or grapevines, so no grapes, no raisins, no wine, no grape juice, can't even eat the husks or the vine itself. And, um, it was all apart during the period where you're separate. You also couldn't cut your hair. And the reason for that was it would be um, used as part of the end um, ceremony when it was over. And you couldn't have any contact with dead bodies. Um, the idea is that you're staying completely holy during this thing. Um, and there wasn't even an exception for close family members. Um, if you had accidental contact with a dead body, right, which made you unclean, then that would void out the period of your separation. Basically, you don't get credit for, you know, the time served um, if you don't fulfill it all the way perfectly. And then um, you've got the offering from the tribal leaders, those 12 that we pointed out. Um, they are going to give a total of six wagons. Four are going to go to the Levitical tribe of Merai for hauling the framing. And then two are going to go to Gershom for hauling the soft goods. It's probably based on weight and volume, but Moses uh, allocates those. And each tribe gives one ox, and um, two tribes together give uh, one wagon each. At the dedication of the altar, each of the tribal leader, leaders are going to give um, this total offerings. You've got a silver charger, a silver bowl, a golden spoon. Inside the charger and bowl are going to be flour mixed with oil as a meat offering, and the spoons can be full of incense. And then you've got three burnt offerings, a young bull, a ram, a lamb, and then a sin offering as a kid of the goat. And then for peace offerings, you got two oxen, five rams, five goats, and five lambs. And they did that 12 days in a row, one for each tribe. Um, when they're first dedicating the altar. It's been built, they're dedicating, it's getting going, the process. And so um, at the end of Numbers chapter 7, you get a final tally of all that was given, the 12 bowls, the 12 spoons, the 12 chargers, the 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 lambs, 12 kids of goats, 24 oxen, 60 rams, 60 goats, 60 lambs. Um, so these two slides boil it down quickly in what takes, you know, 89 uh, verses and so the only thing I didn't include on there is who gave each day but it was going by the order of the tribes. When you get to Numbers chapter 9 you're actually going to jump back 30 days to the first month of the year because it's going to say that the Passover was observed which makes sense 14th day of the first month that's when it's going to be observed every year but what arises is that there are some men who were unclean that particular day and they weren't able to observe it and they were on grave detail. You've got a huge amount of people. Um, and so whoever had to bury bodies or, or deal with the dead that day weren't clean and said, what about us? We want to observe it, but we couldn't, we're unclean. 
And so God designates that the 14th day of the second month is going to be an alternative Passover. Um, so if someone just cannot because they're unclean or they're on a long journey, they couldn't make it back to observe it, um, that he gives uh, an alternative day. And then finally, this is the last thing we talked about last week before we get to new material, um, is that you've got this large body of people. You know, how are you going to have organization for moving them? Well, God tells them, you make two silver trumpets, make them all out of one piece, um, and here's what it's going to be. You're going to have two calls. One is blowing alarm. What exactly that is, whether that's pitch or volume or duration, whatever it is, they knew what alarm was. And then you have another call that's a non-alarm. So I represented those by the three you know, sound bars versus one. So it says, when you have both trumpets blow alarm, then that says, all right, first rank Camp Judah, time to start marching, go. And you do it a second time, it says, all right, second rank Camp Reuben, time to start marching, go. But if you only blow this non-alarm, um, you have both trumpets blow that says, hey, everybody in all your tents, y'all need to come up here to the center of the camp at the tabernacle. We need to talk. Um, and if you have just one trumpet blow, the non-alarm that says, hey, leaders, we need to talk. Leaders powwow, come to the tabernacle. So those are the signals that were given in Numbers chapter 10. All right. So new material. When are we? We are now on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, how it'll be expressed. And how much time has passed? You know, we are now one month and five days since they have left Egypt. Not one month, one year um, and one month and five days since they've left Egypt. They have been at Sinai since the third month. And so you've got about 11 months of stationary. It's time to move. Moving day. All right, so you got the two trumpets blowing. All right, and then you, there's your order of moving. Okay. So, where are we? We've been in Mount Sinai for 11 months. The first uh, place that's going to be recorded, now whether they pitched their tents here or whether this was just an a location of where a particular event occurred. Um, not really sure, but the first you know, notable event as they're going takes place at a place called Tabera. Right? So we're marching, get to Tabera, and Tabera means burning. This is not a pleasant um, theme. Um, so what happened was that the people were complaining. Um, that word complaining means to mourn, to find fault. Um, and so what happened is the Lord heard it and it displeased him and his anger was kindled and he sent fire among them. It says he consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. So those that are on the fringe, the farthest from the tabernacle, um, are the ones who were destroyed by fire. And so Moses called the name of the place burning. So if you... Think about you know, road trips when you don't know necessarily the places of the little things you stopped. You can remember them for the events that occurred. That's why you've got the name here. So Tabera, you've got the burning. So it starts with the people complaining. Not exactly sure what they complained about, but we have a context clue from the next event that says it may be about the food. All right. 
So they're destroyed by fire. So from there, we go on to Kibroth Hatava. Big name, right? What goes on there? The whales. There's some complaining. The Lord sends quails. But there's also death. There's plagues that come. And so Kibroth Hatava, I'm obviously not speaking Hebrew perfectly, um, that translates to graves of the lusters. So they were lusting for something. They were lusting for um, food. Because um, all they've had since the second month of the last year, a whole almost a year's worth of time, has been the manna. Now they're in the desert. They're not starving, but they are eating, you know, um, a meal that they can grind and bake into cakes um, for uh, their their daily bread. Gives their daily bread, um, and they haven't had anything else for a year. So what happens? It says the mixed multitude lusted. So this was not just um, Israelites that were traveling. There were some um, folks who had married among the Egyptians, and some of the Egyptians came with them, or their descendants. And so you've got those who were with them, um, but they were you know, of different, different races uh, from just Israel. They were lusting for particular foods. Um, they were fervently desiring it. And what happened is that the people themselves, it says, wept again. Um, and they were desiring different foods. And they began to say, you know, who's going to give us flesh to eat? We want some meat. We remember what we had in Egypt, which we ate freely. Cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. And now our soul is dried away and there is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. So they were really unhappy with what God was providing for them, and they wanted a variety. They wanted different stuff. They wanted the things that they had back in Egypt. Now, they're forgetting that they were slaves in Egypt. Their bondage was hard, and they'd been crying unto the Lord for deliverance from their affliction. And now, um, after being gone uh, about a year um, and him providing them food every day, they are upset um, because they don't have the same choices. So, So what happens? Moses gets upset. People are complaining. Moses complains. He was so displeased. He goes and whines to the Lord. He says, why have you afflicted me with these people? What have I done that I haven't found favor in your sight? Did I birth these people? Am I their father that I should carry them like a father carries a nursing child? Um, you know, where am I going to find flesh? You know, where am I going to find meat to feed all these people? You know, I can't bear these people. It's too heavy for me to bear. Now, and the emphasis on that is, it's too heavy for me to bear alone. If you're going to deal with me like this, God, just kill me. I pray thee out of hand. If I found any favor in your sight, just let me not see my wretchedness. So Moses is very upset. Um, you know, it's not, not a wise thing to ask the Lord to kill you in any respect. Um, but he's also talking in terms of him bearing it alone. He's not bearing the people. God's bearing them. So Moses is told, you gather unto um, the tabernacle, 70 elders, um, people that you know are elders among the people, officers, bring them that they may stand there with me. And he says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's upon you. The Lord had put the Holy Spirit upon Moses in a, in a very special way. So I'm going to take some of that and put it upon thee so they can bear it with you. Um, and, uh, and so they do do that. Um, and 68 show up, and what happens is they begin to prophesy. It was evidence that the spirit was upon them. Uh, two of them who didn't come when they were called are out in the camp, and um, uh, 
Joshua hears about it and he says, you should, you should tell them not to prophesy, you know, because they didn't come. And, and Moses basically tells them to hush. He says, well, you, you're envying for my sake. He said, I'd rather that all the Lord's um, people were prophets. The spirit was resting on all of them. Um, and so Moses was less offended that they had disobeyed his call to come to the tabernacle um, than you know, just happy that he was going to have some help with his people. But the additional instruction that God said was, tell the people to sanctify yourself tomorrow, for you're going to eat flesh. The Lord is going to bring them um, flesh. But you're not just going to eat it for one day, nor two, nor five, nor ten, nor twenty, but you're going to eat it for a whole month until it comes out your nose that it becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord which among you and have wept before him saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? Now Moses, being the literalist, says, Lord, if we killed all of our cattle, we couldn't you know, feed this many people for a month. You know, we'd take all the fish of the sea. Now he's using some hyperbole there. And the Lord just answers, is the Lord's hand wax short? Thou shalt see whether my word shall come to pass or no. And so Moses went out and told them. So the next day, the Lord sent a wind and brought quails, it says, from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and on that side round about the camp and it were two cubits high about the face of the earth. Okay, so let's talk quails. You got the camp, you got a big old population of people, you know, that 600,000 soldiers plus their wives and children and cattle, plus outside that you got the unclean folks. You have got a day's journey worth of quail in all directions, right? I don't know how far a day's journey is. I think it's reasonable to say that you could cover 10 miles in a day, even moving at a pretty slow pace. And so I'm going to say that's a conservative estimate, a 10 mile a day's journey. Right? And these folks are a lot tougher than we are. I'd, we'd probably struggle with 10 miles, but all right. So you got quails everywhere for 10 miles, all right? How deep did it say? It said two cubits high. Well, that's, that's taller than 12 inches. It's taller than 24 inches. That's about 36 inches worth of quail. So that's pretty high. A cubit um, is roughly 18 inches. The fingertips, finger length from elbow to your um, finger. Um, it's a, not a precise measurement. Um, and, and some folks think it's you know, 24 inches, which would be deeper, but we'll use the more conservative one here. 18 inches by two cubits, 36 inches of quail. That's really tall. Now these quails are not to scale, obviously. So let's, uh, let's get some context for that. These are some of my children. Um, my one-year-old would be completely submerged. Um, David, he's about two inches over 36 inches. Um, so you might see his, his eyebrows or something. And my six-year-old um, would probably have his head be able to poke around. This is a lot of quails. It's very, very deep. Now, let's talk some math. We're going to make some assumptions. If you've got soldiers of 600,000 plus their families, and you've got that in roughly uh, a circle, let's say that the radius of that circle is a mile and a half. 
think that's again a conservative estimate, but that'd be three miles across. So if you took 10 miles beyond that, right? So you've got 11.5 miles, and you subtract out the camp, right? You're gonna be left with a big area to be filled with quails. A big, about 400 square miles. This is about seven square miles, this is about 415, about 400 square miles. And again, that's assuming a day's journey is only 10 miles. And there's, there's assumptions in this. And the reason I'm doing it is just to show you the scale of what he's talking about. That even if I'm off by two miles, we're still talking huge numbers. So if you've got 400 square miles and it's 36 inches deep, that would be 34 million cubic feet. This is an astronomical number. How many quails would it take to fill that? By my count, <laughs> about 6.4 billion. So what are my assumptions? Obviously, I'm assuming the size of the camp. I'm assuming the day's journey. And in the volume of a quail, I found a study online from the 80s that showed the range of a particular quail's volume ranging between 140 centimeters and 227 cubic centimeters. So I just took the middle number, about 170. Again, does it matter? No. But this is a huge number, right? So if you were in my hometown, Tifton, and you knew where these things were, the folks at church tonight will understand, you know, the whole downtown is covered by that mile and a half radius circle. And then you got to go out pretty far to get that ridge another 10 miles. Um, that may not resonate with y'all, but I'll pull one up for a regional. How about Atlanta? This circle is a mile and a half radius, so that would represent the size of the camp. You basically have quails covering all of 285. 36 inches deep. Oh my goodness. This is a huge, huge, huge number. So it says that the people stood up all that day and gathered quails. This is verse 32 of Numbers 11. And all that night. And all the next day. So if you're assuming 12 hours each, you've got about 36 hours of gathering. It says the he that gathered the least gathered 10 homers. Little baskets here of quails. 10 homers. That's the guy who counted, gathered up the least. Well, how much is a homer? Um, well, we can do some math. In Ezekiel 45 and 11, it says that there are 10 ephahs in one homer. And in Exodus 16, 35, it says there are 10 omers, no H, in an ephah. So big units, smaller units, smallest units. Why is an omer significant? Because in Exodus 16, 16, it says that when you're gathering manna, each person is to gather one omer of food. All right, that equals one day's rations. So on the Sabbath day or the day before the Sabbath day, you're to gather two omers, one for that day, one for the next. Okay, so you've got basically um, one omer equals one day's rations. Now, um, continuing on with our math lesson, we got to cancel out our units, right? Omers cancel, ephahs cancel, omers cancel, multiply across the top for our fractions. 10 times 10 times 10 equals day's rations per man. So the guy who gathered the least gathered a thousand days worth of rations of quail. That's a lot. But oh yeah, there's 600,000 men, plus wives and children and everything. So again, conservative number. 
600,000 days rations times 100 or 600,000 men left with a gathering at a minimum because remember this is the guy who gathered least of 6 million days rations of quail this is a bunch okay and while the flesh was yet in their mouth between their teeth ere it was chewed the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he named the place Kibroth Hadavah, because there they buried the people that lusted. Right? So that's your next destination, was from Tabera, the burnings, where they wept and complained, burned the Ottomans. Here you've got the location where the quails came down. They gathered for 36 hours, huge amounts, and then while they started chewing, God spent, sent a plague and killed off a whole bunch of them because they were lusting uh, after things. Um, and really, they were desiring to go back to Egypt because the food was better. All right? So, step, stop one, stop two, stop three, we get to Hazaroth. What happened at Hazaroth? Well... There's another plague, but it's kind of a single-person plague. Miriam and Aaron start speaking against Moses, and they say, you know what? He married an Ethiopian woman. She wasn't Jewish, right? He married outside the family, and that was when he, you know, he was raised by the Egyptians, and he fled after the murder and lived in the backside of the desert in Midian for 40 years with Jethro, um, his father-in-law, and married with his daughter Zipporah. Um, and so now he's, you know, 81-year-old man, and they're saying, you know what? He, he's married an outsider, um, and the Lord spoke to us, you know, you know. Is he really the only leader of this people? So basically they're kind of getting their heckles up about why they shouldn't be considered more important. And the Lord heard it, and he called all of them down um, to the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord came down a pillar of fire and said, look, if I have a prophet among the children of Israel, I'm going to speak to him in visions and in dreams. But Moses is different. I speak to him as if speaking face to face, not through dark speeches, that there is something different about Moses. The way I do it, basically, don't get um, above yourself. <laughs> you lift up with pride. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And uh, the cloud lifted off from the tabernacle, and Miriam came a leper. She was white as snow. Um, and Aaron you know, beseeches Moses saying, you know, we've, don't, don't lay the sin to us. We've done foolishness. Foolishly, we know we've sinned. Don't leave her in this condition. You know, basically ask the Lord to take away the leprosy. So Moses did. He says, Lord, please heal her now. I, I beg you. And the Lord answered him and said, you know what? She's going to have to wait a minute. And so um, he said, she's going to have to wait, wait at least a week now. As a leper, she's unclean. She's got to go outside the camp. Um, and, and they wouldn't move there from Hazaroth until that week had passed. So Sinai to Tabra, Tabra to Kibroth, Ava to Hazaroth. And then finally we get to the region known as Kadesh, also called Kadesh Barnea, um, in the wilderness of Paran. And that's when you're going to have the 12 spies who are going to be sent out to go check out the land. Hold on time. We're getting there. All right.
So we're going to meet the spies. You've got each of these are designated as a ruler of their tribes. Um, not the top one, but a ruler. Um, and the names really don't matter so much other than the two that I've highlighted. Caleb, who was of the tribe of Judah, and Jehoshua, or whose original name was Oshea, whose Moses name changed his name to Jehoshua. Later, we'd refer to him as Joshua. He was the tribe of Ephraim, Caleb of the tribe of Judah. These are going to be the two spies who bring back the good report. Um, everyone else is uh, fearful, um, but they can't do it because the people are too scary. We don't know a whole lot about the route that they took. I've looked at a lot of maps this morning, and a lot of them make a lot of assumptions. Here's what it says. They went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin. So you have the wilderness of Paran. North of that, apparently, is the wilderness of Zin. Unto Rahab, as men come to Hamath. So they were heading towards the city or region of Hamath. I think it's a region. Um, and they go to the city or region of Rahab. Again, the maps all vary on whether these are regions or cities. Well, for our purposes, if, if there's not a really precise location that everyone agrees on, I'm not that worried about it. Um, but here's something they do agree on. They ascended by the south and came unto Hebron. We know Hebron. That's, that's a, a stationary site. We know where that's at. And so if their camp down here in Kadesh Barnea, they're traveling up here to the south um, to Hebron. And there they're seeing the children of Anak. These were descendants of giants. These are big dudes. They would describe themselves as being like grasshoppers in their own sights. Now, it's probably an exaggeration to some extent because we know uh, later when you're introduced to the descendants of the giants in David's day, you know, Goliath was big, but he was about nine feet tall. Um, so it's not astronomically big, not ludicrously big, but, but, but big. And so the grasshopper thing sounds like an exaggeration. So they went from Hebron all the way up to Rahab. And again, here's one of those maps that, um, we'll zoom in, um, shows, um, so you got Kadesh Barnea up to Hebron. And, you know, the route doesn't say they went to Shechem or Jerusalem or any of these things. Um, but up here, you've got what they describe as the region of Ahab, uh, Rahab um, towards um, the region of Hamath. Long story short is they came from the south and they explored for 40 days um, to see what it was like, who the people are, were they well defended, you know, what was the, the bounty of the land. And they came back carrying, you know, big old um, clusters of grapes. You know, they, they took off one cluster, but it was so big they had to carry it um, on a pole between two men. Um, so we've got some, some heavy duty um, grapes there, um, which is good. I mean, this is a land that's described as being full of milk and honey. It's a good land, um, but the people um, were big and their towns were strong and uh, the 10 spies were scared and they basically said, we can't do it. We cannot go up against these people. They're stronger than us. Um, and obviously they've forgotten what God had done, you know, a little bit more than a year ago to one of the mightiest nations on the planet at that time, but the Egypt was just completely hammered them. But they just looked at it from a purely military standpoint. We've got 600,000 fighting men. These, they're well defended. They're bigger than us. They're stronger. Um, we can't do it. Um, Whereas Caleb um, and O'Shea or Joshua um, said, let us go, so go up at once and possess it. We are well able over, to overcome it. Um, so 
that's as far as I've gotten for today, and we're out of time. So I'll stop there. And I'll stop.